The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And guess what we are doing this week, Kemper? There's no guessing needed because I have been so excited for this episode for so long now. We are doing Miss Marple. Yay! <laughs> We've been trying. That wasn't very convincing, Catherine. Oh, hey, it was it was me trying to be convincing. You always knew that Dark Marple would rise again and risen uh, she has. Well, listen, I I'm always <laughs> excited for the reappearance of Dark Marple. We haven't seen her in a while because we've been doling these stories out because we don't have very many of them before we get to the next novel. The body in the library, it's still a ways off. Yep. So, um why don't uh you tell us a little bit about the publication history of this? All righty. Death by Drowning was first published in Nash's Paul Mall magazine in November 1931. This is the last story in the 13 Problems collection. It's a little bit of the outlier story, which is why we were able to leave it for so long. Of course, the first six stories come in a set. Those are the ones that are centered around the Tuesday night club, Shea Marple. Then we have the second set of six which is centered on the never-ending Bantry dinner party, which did finally end in the bedroom of Jane Hillier. This story was written several, several years after that and added at the end of the collection, as it features four of these same characters in that second set, and also very much references those earlier 12 in terms of the relationship between Sir Henry Clithering and Miss Marple, which we will get into. Tell us about our victim, Catherine. So our victim is Rose Emmett. She's the daughter of the local publican, and she seemingly killed herself by throwing herself over a bridge in St. Mary Mead after finding herself, quote-unquote, in trouble, i.e. knocked up. But all is not what it seems, because when is it ever? Kind kind of the whole purpose of the genre. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And her retrieved body also has bruises on her arms. And I just have to say, because it's become, it's it's apparent right from the get-go here in talking about our victim, this is a rare Miss Marple, a really Agatha Christie story, but especially Miss Marple short story that is rooted in the working class. This is not a movie star who has been off or is, you know, staying in St. Mary Mead for the weekend and something kooky happens. I don't think this is the kind of short story that most people think of when they think of Agatha Christie or certainly Miss Marple. And it's interesting that this is what the story is about. It is a real class issue in this story. Oh yeah, it's purposeful. Let's talk about our suspects. We're just going to list everyone who is interviewed here. And for a short story, it's kind of a lot of people. First off, we've got Rex Sanford, and he is a modernist architect down from London in St. Mary Mead. He is enfianced to a fair lady in London, and he has absolutely no intention of being with Rose Emmett. However, Rose has gone around the entire village basically telling everyone that he's going to marry her. So it seems that these two were 
engaging in a dalliance and it was not serious on his part, but it was very much serious on hers. Then we have Joe Ellis, the slightly oafish village carpenter who Rose has strung along for years and he is hopelessly in love with her because he's been telling everybody he's going to marry her. And already we have our sort of classist love triangle here, right? I mean, there's a rich guy and a poor guy and Rose herself is poor. And it seems that she at least had fantasies, if not something a little bit more real than that of perhaps transcending her class and marrying Rex Sanford and moving off to London and a better life. If you think that that's why she was after him, because it seems like perhaps there were other reasons. Depending perhaps. On, yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to it. Um, next we have Mr. Emmett, who is Rose's father, the aforementioned publican. And who Rose has told that she is pregnant. Then we have Jimmy Brown, who's a 12-year-old boy who is conveniently near the bridge at the time. And he's the one who heard a scream and a splash and ran to get help. And before you say, well, he doesn't really sound like a suspect, I would just like to point out that kids can be killers too. Sure can. And that is all we are going to say on that subject for now. Yep. And then finally, we have Mrs. Bartlett, who is a local landlady and laundry woman, and she houses Joe Ellis. So the world as it appears to be. Uh, We have Sir Henry Clithering, our old friend, uh, former head of Scotland Yard. And he's down in St. Mary Mead visiting our other old friends, Colonel and Dolly Bantry. The Bantries! So Colonel Arthur casually informs Sir Henry that Dolly is very upset because uh, the previous night, so this is Saturday morning, the previous night Rose Emmett has apparently thrown herself off a bridge after getting herself preggers. The two men shrug it off and continue eating their breakfast, but apparently Dolly is off wandering around town being very upset about this. That's a nasty business, said Sir Henry. Of course it is. Don't like to think of it myself. And that would be the colonel speaking. <laughs> Later that day, Sir Henry is lounging peacefully in the Bantry's yard when he is informed that Miss Marple has shown up at the house, having found out that he was in town. He, of course, goes in right away because he is, at this point, a total Miss Marple stan. And he tells Miss Marple that Dolly is not at home. Miss Marple is like, yeah, 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 I knew that. I'm here for you. You see, Miss Marple is extremely worried because she knows two things. What are those two things, Catherine? One, she knows that Rose Emmett didn't kill herself. She was murdered. Murdered, you say? Murdered, Miss Marple says. And two, Miss Marple knows who did it, but she has no evidence per se, and she obviously can't go to the local inspector and say this. However, flashing back to our previous 12 stories... Miss Marple did exactly the same thing because she remembered that Sir Henry had had very kind words for her powers of perception at the never-ending Bantry dinner party. And she thought that perhaps at least Sir Henry, of all people, would listen to her and, you know, at least take her concerns seriously. It's actually quite affecting what she says to him. What you said has emboldened me to come to you now. I feel that if I say something to you, at least you will not laugh at me. Poor Miss Marple. She knows knows what people think of her. She knows that they think she's a dotty, old busybody. And she hopes that Sir Henry Clothering has the perception to take her seriously. It's also interesting what she says about Inspector Druitt, who is the inspector on the case, because it's not that he's really stupid. He actually is rather intelligent. And here's what Miss Marple says, and this is such a this is such a Marpelian takedown. Inspector Druitt, you see, is really an intelligent man. But a mediocre amount of intelligence is sometimes most dangerous. It does not take one far enough. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's kind of like God give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. <laughs> no, it's very much that. Well, very, very much that because it's like somebody who is intelligent enough to see one thing, but not enough to go the step further, and also too confident in their mm-hmm. own abilities to take mm-hmm. the advice of someone else. Miss Marple's totally right. Exactly. If he were a complete and utter dolt, he would be led around easily. Um, right. But he's smart enough to know his own mind and to put two and two together, but not much more than that. <laughs> like, not another two. Right. So Miss Marple realizes she's got to take matters into her own hands here. So she makes a suggestion. Could Sir Henry, as respected as he is, take a look into the investigation that day? And she writes a name down on a piece of paper, folds it, and hands it to Sir Henry, and this, of course, is the name of the person who she says she knows did it. And she tells him that if she turns out to be wrong, in Sir Henry's view, she'll let it go because she trusts him as well. This is a, a you know, mutual respect that they have for each other, although I don't know, really know why. Because Sir Henry Clithering certainly never proved himself to be all that perspicacious well, I mean, I, I, I guess in he was, any of the <laughs> no, other No, but I guess he was stories. the head of Scotland Yard, so. His best characteristic is his respect for and appreciation of his marble. <laughs> so, right. so he decides to take a leap of faith and go for it. He accepts the piece of paper and he says that he will investigate. So I want to point out one thing which is interesting here. Miss Marple's very little in this story. Very little, except for at the end, yes. you know, mm-hmm. when when she's obviously, spoiler alert, proven right. She's pulling the strings, though, right? right. Like she's the she's the marionette player here, but we do not see her. Yeah. Right. So Sir Henry uh, goes and introduces himself to Inspector Druitt, as well as the chief constable of the county, who's Colonel Melchett. Mm-hmm. And they know him by his reputation and are psyched that he wants to join in. Well, they assume, by the way, and it's kind of funny, that he is just bored to death yeah. at the Bantry's house. Mm-hmm. Chief constable thinks to himself... The old man abusing the government, the old woman babbling on about bulbs, since, <laughs> as we know, all Dolly Bantry really cares about his gardening. <laughs> right, and all the Colonel, all that Colonel Bantry seems to do is complain about things he reads in the newspaper. So, right, right. Um, but what they do is that they immediately confirm what Miss Marple had only suspected, which is that Rose Emmett was murdered. Not only were her arms covered in like hard grip bruises. But a young boy who is nearby heard her scream and hit the water. They also reveal that they have found this letter in her pocket. It's soaked, you know, but it reads, all right, (laughs) I'll meet you at the bridge at 830 RS. And given that 830 was right around when uh, Jimmy Brown heard the scream and the splash, I mean, it looks like it's Rex Sanford, but they're going to give it a go and do some interviewing. Right. I mean, Rex Sanford is the obvious suspect here, so we have to assume that his name is not the name written on Miss Marple's piece of paper. Right. So first up, we have Tom Emmett at the Blue Boar, and this is Rose's father. He insists that, yes, he was a bit upset when Rose told him that she was with child, but he did not turn her out of the house. He also heavily implies that he was pretty much planning to blackmail Rex Sanford (laughs) because he assumed, and assumed rightly, right, that it was... Mm -hmm. um, Rex Sanford's child. Right. So they then go to Rex Sanford, and to say that Rex Sanford is not liked in St. Mary Mead would be an understatement. He is apparently doing some quote unquote peculiar house for Allington and is a quote unquote <laughs> bullshit, you know, no morals. Oh, those bullshies. We've seen them before in the Christie verse. <laughs> they're no good. 
Yeah. And so Rose also was broadcasting, right? That he was the father and that he was going to marry her, which of course no one except Rose thought, or as Druitt puts it really roughly, quote unquote, stick to your own class. It's just out there in the text. It's true. They also um, say that Rex Sanford's speech was a little too ladylike. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. They make a lot of those sort of like effeminate qualities, like his hair is too long. It's interesting because I think this is where a 21st century gloss on any focus on a man being effeminate reads as, oh, he's gay. That's not what they're trying to do here. Obviously, he... No, but they're they're just othering him. They're just othering him, but they're other. Yeah, they're othering him by the fact that he doesn't talk and walk like a real man, and yet he also impregnated Rose and treated her horribly. We would just tend to read that differently, but that's certainly not what they're implying here. And when they go to interview him, I mean, he is very pathetic and distressed. You know, it is because he has a fiance back in London, and it does seem. Well, we'll get to it in a second, but he is pretty much immediately thought to be guilty by Druid and Melchett, and they walk out. But Sir Henry Clithering goes back inside and asks him a little bit more, and essentially he says that he's been, like, hate-alienated by everyone in St. Mary Mead and that no one in the entire village will speak to him even. And Rose was extremely persistent and pretty and wouldn't leave him alone. And, well, I One mean, thing led to another. Yeah, and so he had sex with her, and then she stalked him. I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. And he tells Sir Henry that he swears that he wrote the letter that was in her pocket to get her to go away so that he could flee back to London where he would get his lawyer to make a financial arrangement to get her to stay the hell away from him. Right. But that he didn't actually go to the bridge that night um, and instead took just like a long, bleak walk through the woods and, of course, has no alibi. Yeah, so he is uh, he's in trouble. He is obviously the one who Miss Marple is worried is going to get hanged unfairly. So Sir Henry believes him, I would imagine, mainly because of Miss Marple. But he also just, I think his read on him is that he's a bit of a loser almost. I, I think that's what what we're supposed to think of him. He's pathetic. He doesn't seem to be capable of having concocted a murderous plan. Well, no, and he's not even the, like, in a weird way, the fact that it seems pretty clear that Rose was the aggressor Mm -hmm. also points to something that's supposed to be read as weak. Weak in him, and also that perhaps means there's there's more going on here with other people within this town. That's in some ways even a clue. So Sir Henry believes Rex Sanford and the other men do not. They've decided that the case is clear. Rex Sanford did it. But Sir Henry insists that they interview Joe Ellis, who is Rose's former quasi-boyfriend, the one who said that he was going to end up with her. But obviously they were not on the same page about that. And when they go to the cottage, remember, Joe Ellis is living at Mrs. Bartlett's cottage. She is his landlady. And she is this middle-aged widow. And she tells them what a wonderful lodger Joe is and how he puts shelves up for her, how he's been building a new dresser in the kitchen for her. She just goes on and on about how wonderful Joe is. And she tells them that Joe certainly did not go out the previous night as he was, in fact, fixing the kitchen dresser. And she was helping him. So he can't have had anything to do with it. 
And so Joe himself comes in and tells the men how much he cared for Rose and how Rose was duped and, you know, how he didn't even mind he would have married her anyway and basically raised the baby as their own, etc. And he also um, instantly confirms that he was at the cottage fixing that kitchen dresser the night before. But in Sir Henry's opinion, he answered it so immediately that it appeared to be a planned answer. Mm. And also in Sir Henry's opinion, which is sort of mean, a slow-thinking man could not have done so that quickly. (laughs) Yeah, classism rears its ugly head again, right? A Mm -hmm. thick-headed, working-class man wouldn't be that quick on his feet. So Sir Henry, at least, thinks. Sir Henry takes the time to go find Mrs. Bartlett again in the kitchen, where he sees the kitchen dresser and collides with a pram, which he panics as awoken an infant, but Mrs. Bartlett confirms, no, 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 it's just laundry. Or if we're in the movie Speed. I think it's a bit of cans. Oh my god! There was no bit, it was full of cans. Are you sure? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Oh my god. It's just cans. <laughs> and he gets her to tell him her opinion on Rose. He asks her about Rose, which is basically that she was a bad lot. Whereas she doesn't have enough nice things to say about Joe, she doesn't have enough bad things to say about Rose. Yeah, she she prefaces it basically like, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, which is always when you know something's going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> so while the colonel and the inspector are still really convinced about Rex, Sir Henry insists on seeing this boy who was a witness, Jimmy Brown. And so Jimmy tells him that he saw, one, Rex Sanford on one side of the river, and two, another man on the village side of the river who he assumed was Joe Ellis as he was whistling the only song that uh, Joe Ellis apparently knows, I Want Her Be Happy. Because even Jimmy Brown, like the 12 year old kid, is like tossing shade at Joe Ellis. And then, (laughs) and then three, he sees um, as he goes to run for help, he sees two men in the distance doing work with a wheelbarrow. So, the world so, as it actually is, Kemper. Let's talk about the world as it actually is. We've got some clues here, and it's it's a little hard to talk about these without just revealing everything, so bear with us. But clue number one, probably the most important clue, if you aren't entirely sure about what you're seeing, you might not be seeing what you think you're seeing. Young Jimmy proves to be a pretty good witness. He directly saw Sanford, but then he only vaguely saw Joe Ellis, identifying him by his whistling. <laughs> And this third duo of men with a wheelbarrow, he only saw in shadow at a distance. So there's a really good chance that there's something iffy going on here with the vague sighting of Joe Ellis and then the shadowy duo by a wheelbarrow. Probably going to turn out to be something other than what it seems. Remember in Christy, if things haven't been double, if not triple checked by multiple senses, then they may not be as they seem right clue number two beware the perfect alibi because you know most people probably don't 
have perfect alibis. But both Mrs. Bartlett and Joe Ellis have this unimpeachable alibi that they were both working together in the cottage on this kitchen dresser. A deduction here that we can easily make is that the thing about two people vouching for one another is that they could easily be in cahoots. Clue number three. What are our evergreen motives again? Well, in this case, we actually have all four L's. And that would be first love and lust from Joe Ellis, and then lucre and loathing on the part of both Tom Emmett and Rex Sanford. Remember, Tom Emmett, Rose's father, wanted to blackmail Rex Sanford. Rex Sanford was just sort of worried about his fiance in London, which was probably an advantageous match for his career. So there's certainly lucre and loathing there. And the love and lust is self-explanatory with Joe Ellis. Also potentially a little bit of lust on Rex Sanford's part, right? With Rose. Well, although he seems to be terrified of her. I mean, he's trying to literally, <laughs> he's literally trying to flee the countryside to get away from her. So it's true. <laughs> the lust was really all coming from her probably. It's true. Yeah. But sometimes those emotions, the obvious iterations of those emotions are not the important ones. Perhaps there are other L's lingering just underneath the surface here from other characters. So we should think about that as we turn to our resolution. Take it away, Catherine. Bring us home. And here is our other clue, which is just going to be the giveaway. So we didn't list it out, but uh, Sir Henry tells Miss Marple that he does not think Rex Sanford did it, but there's nothing to clear him because Ellis has an alibi, except Miss Marple leans forward and tells him, Mrs. Bartlett isn't at home on Friday nights. She's out delivering the laundry. Miss Marple just exploded that alibi. Yep, she did. Just burned it right up. Blew up two alibis. Both Joe Ellis's and Mrs. Bartlett's alibi. So the three investigators show up to tell Ellis and Bartlett that they must be lying, since Miss Marple has to do everything, and that Joe has been seen by Jimmy, that he was seen in the woods by Jimmy, that they know Mrs. Bartlett wasn't helping him in the house and she was delivering laundry as she does on Friday nights per Miss Marple. And poor Joe pretty much comes clean immediately. And it's clear, similar, it reminded me a little bit of Death on the Nile, the novel, when we have our dual murderers, Simon and Jackie, and the brains (laughs) is clearly Jackie. So go for the weakest link and he'll just crumble. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens here. Joe Ellis just comes clean immediately. And it's clear that Mrs. Bartlett is the one who cooked up this alibi to protect him or perhaps to protect herself. For it was Mrs. Bartlett who thought that Rose was a little slut. And that is a a direct quote from the book. Actually, Actually, (laughs) this worthless little slut. Yep. That is right in that story. I, yep. I was uh, I was a little surprised. <laughs> I put exclamations in the margin there. This is Sir Henry Clothering talking to her, right? You hated this girl. You couldn't bear that this worthless little slut should take your man from you. Because, listener, Mrs. Bartlett was in love with her lodger, Joe Ellis. Yep. And she believed that Rose didn't deserve Joe and that Mrs. Bartlett did. (laughs) And she was not going to let Rose interfere with that. And so when she saw Rose waiting at the bridge for Rex Sanford, who was never going to come, she took the opportunity and shoved her over the side of the bridge. And the two men who Jimmy Brown saw in the distance were actually... 
Mrs. Bartlett coming across Joe Ellis in the woods and the wheelbarrow was Mrs. Bartlett's laundry pram. That was the pram that was full of laundry. He just took that for a wheelbarrow. So he saw Rex Sanford and then he identified the fact that Joe Ellis was in the area by the whistling. And then when he saw this third, quote-unquote, duo, it was actually Joe Ellis and Mrs. Bartlett with the laundry pram. Right. And so the reason that uh, Mrs. Bartlett had convinced Joe to go along with the plan is when they found out what happened to Rose, she immediately told him, I saw you out there. Everybody's going to think you did it. Right. Kind of bleak. Yeah. It's kind of bleak. And it's a little sad. This is what Mrs. Bartlett says at the end. It just came over me. She shan't take Joe from me. I haven't had a happy life, sir. My husband, he was a poor lot, an invalid and cross-grained. I nursed and looked after him, true. And then Joe came here to lodge. I'm not such an old woman, sir, in spite of my gray hair. I'm just 40, sir. Joe's one in a thousand. I'd have done anything for him, anything at all. He was like a little child, sir, so gentle and believing, etc., etc. And I do have to say, there is certainly a parallel here in that Mrs. Bartlett is the mastermind behind this murder, not just the mastermind, but the one who actually perpetrated the murder on behalf of, or at least we have here a duo, right? A male and female duo who are our murderers. And I think you could place them at the opposite end of the story from our male and female duo of detectives, Miss Marple and Sir Henry Clithering. And it's interesting to me that Mrs. Bartlett is all action. Mm -hmm. um, whereas poor Miss Marple knows everything Figure, has already figured everything out and then has to come into the story once more to help Sir Henry Clithering over the hump of the alibi situation, but can't really do anything for herself because she knows that no one will listen to her or take her seriously. And the frustration that Mrs. Bartlett feels at the wreck and ruin of her life and how that led her to do what she did is an interesting counterpoint to how Miss Marple well, conducts herself. Although Miss Marple, obviously, say. yeah, I agree. But I mean, Miss Marple is also somebody of action, right? She took the opportunity of the fact that Henry Clithering was in town and she immediately must have gotten up in the morning because she keeps knowledge of every goings on, right? So mm -hmm. she saw what was going on. She decided that she knew what the answer was. And then she literally wrote down somebody's name on a piece of paper and told Sir Henry Clithering to go after her. Yeah, she, she made the best of, of the opportunities that she had in this specific situation, which is what she seems to have done all of her life. But it's sad that she couldn't just do it herself due to ageism and sexism both. Well, although even today, if you knew that somebody had been murdered and it wasn't a murder, you would go to the police, I suppose. But if you thought the police were going to think you were crazy and you knew that you had, like, another contact, you would still go to them today. No, but the reason why the police won't actually listen to her or why she only has one person who both has the means to actually get anything done and who also has the respect required to listen to her. And she's lucky enough that he happens to be on the scene when this happens. If that hadn't happened, she'd kind of be SOL. No, it's true. But, you know, she does have no evidence. 
Of course. It's just that the limitations that are being placed upon Miss Marple in the story actually have an odd echo with and or, or parallel to the limitations that Mrs. Bartlett is talking about a little bit at the end of the story. A life in some ways thwarted. I think you're just uncomfortable with all the sympathetic feelings this is bringing up in you, Catherine, as to Miss Marple, because you just don't want to buy into the fact that Miss Marple is lightness and truth. She's she's just trying to do the best she can do here, Catherine. Are no darkness little, about are, it. Are you a little bit in love with Miss Marple? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit? Have you been listening to this? <laughs> I am head over oh, heels. Right. One hundred percent, just no, crazy in love. I respect with that I, glorious I res- old lady. I respect what she does here, but I mean, I think that to say that you could go even now to the police with no evidence and make a baseless accusation against somebody is like a little bit much. She, you know. Of course, it's just that the reason why Miss Marple is in particular not going to be taken seriously and why she knows that she has to go outside of the system doesn't just have to do with her lack of evidence. It has to do with who she is and what she is. Right, but she gets ends up being taken seriously in Murder at the Vicarage. Sure, there's evidence there. Right. She can point to some concrete stuff that's happened and how. And how. (laughs) And how. And you know what? There is going to be more concrete stuff to happen in St. Mary Mead in novels to come. I also, I have to say, I wish that this one had been adapted. Why was this never adapted? It's a good question with a lot of these, though. Like, this would have been a good one to have been adapted. I think, I mean, some of that, this one in particular, I think would have been a really good one. Especially, we talked about this in um, the thumb mark of... St. Peter? Yeah, the thumb mark of St. Peter. Which was, by the way, quasi-adapted in one of the latter-day Agatha Christie's Marple episodes. But it was one of those things where they were melding different stories together, so they didn't do a straight adaptation of it, but they took elements of that story. But when Miss Marple herself is a direct participant, at least, in the story, to me, that just seems like a no-brainer. I just don't understand why they were never adapted. But maybe someday, maybe maybe another Marple will... uh, Marple will rise again, right? Marple will rise again and will do death by drowning. (laughs) That is Miss Marple for now, but fear not, we have much Miss Marple to come. We will probably take a break from the Miss Marple short stories until we get to the next novel, unless I am feeling like I just need an injection of Marple, and maybe we could dive into one of the later short stories, but we'll get to her, and then we'll start getting a lot of Marple as we get into the later Christie novels. But Right, once we start getting into Marple, we will start running out of Poirot, so... Oh, I can't even imagine that. Do I hear some negativity towards um, my beloved Belgian? No less negativity than Christy herself had, as we've discussed, and as she talked about in her serialized forward to Appointment with Death, which we have already covered. So next week, we are so excited because we have a very special episode. We've mentioned this before. John Curran, preeminent Agatha Christie scholar who has two fantastic published books under his belts about how Agatha Christie did what she did. The first of those is called Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. And I believe the second is 50 years in the making more from Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. It's a bit of a sequel after the first one did so well and so intrigued Christie fans all over the world. He was kind enough to sit down with us recently and answer a bevy of questions that we had for him just over a wide range of topics. So it's going to be a really fun interview. 
we will be posting that as our next episode. And after that, we should mention our next novel, which is the final Poirot novel within the 1930s. And that would be Hercule Poirot's Christmas. Since, sure, (laughs) it's basically the opposite of Christmas right now. It's just heating up uh, in most places in the Northern Hemisphere, but that's fine. We would like to have said that there was a Christmas in July tie-in, but obviously it's also not July, so... (laughs) Yeah. By the way, there's barely any reference to Christmas within that novel, despite the title. It's a little bit of a murder on the links situation, at least from my recollection. So, perhaps not as egregious as it would seem to be doing that novel now, but that is our next novel, and in the meantime, we love to hear from you email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on twitter at allaboutthedame you can find Catherine at brobcat and we are also on facebook our facebook page is all about agatha our instagram account is at all about agatha rate and review us wherever you are listening to this podcast we really love to hear from you and we will talk to you next time bye bye